0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activities landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's PRI-MED.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy.
1: Welcome to Prime Ed's podcast on frequently asked questions on the topic of systemic lupus erythematosus. Today we are joined by Dr. Sarah Tedeschi, a rheumatologist out of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Tedeschi. Uh, so to get started, our first question is... What titer is considered a
2: positive ANA? And what is the clinical significance of a positive ANA? That's a great question, Meg. As a rheumatologist, I see a lot of patients who are referred principally because they have a, quote, positive ANA. And there's a long answer and there's a short answer. Um, I'll start with the short answer, which is that the lab is going to report a positive ANA at a titer that's 1 to 40 or higher. However, to a rheumatologist, an ANA of 1 to 40 is not necessarily something to bat an eye at. And the reason is that this is supposed to be a very sensitive test that can capture patients with autoimmune diseases, but it's not a specific test. About 25 to 30 percent Of people aged 20 to 60 years old will have an ANA of 1 to 40. So think about that. 25%, a quarter of people that you see walking in the door, regardless of symptoms, can have an ANA of 1 to 40. So if we consider that to be positive, the vast majority of patients with a test of 1 to 40 are not going to have an autoimmune disease. So as a rheumatologist, when I see a patient, I start to consider an ANA as positive or potentially suspicious for an autoimmune disease if the titer is higher than 1 to 40. So for example if it's 1 to 80 or 1 to 160. When you look at the general population only about 5% will have an ANA that's 1 to 160. Still many of the patients who have an ANA of 1 to 160 will not have an autoimmune disease. If you think about the prevalence of a disease like lupus which affects less than 1% of the population but yet 5% of the population can have an ANA of 1 to 160, that means that the vast majority of patients with that titer are not going to have a disease like lupus. So our next question is, how
1: do you manage patients who have symptoms of lupus, but their initial labs come back normal, like their ANA, their ESR and CRP, or their complement levels? And when these labs come back negative,
2: would you consider testing them again in the future? And if so, when? It really depends on what the symptoms are and who the patient is. So, for example, if it's a young woman who's coming in with joint swelling, her hands are stiff in the morning, she has maybe some rashes that seem unusual, and yet she has a normal ANA, ESR, complements, then we start to think about other diagnoses that could explain the symptoms. For example, rheumatoid arthritis. Maybe it's something like early onset systemic sclerosis, or maybe this patient has musculoskeletal pain that's causing hand pain and maybe even stiffness, but it's not an autoimmune disease. If the patient has presentations or symptoms that are more severe, for example, the patient's been found to have fluid around the lungs or around the heart with a pleural or pericardial effusion, or they're having unexplained fevers, And yet, all these tests are negative. I think at that point, I might repeat the tests again in a couple of weeks if the symptoms persist. But also, I would evaluate again other possible diagnoses. Does this patient have an occult infection, a tick-borne illness? You know, heaven forbid they have a malignancy, but that's always on the differential of somebody who has ongoing fevers and constitutional symptoms. So the 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 symptoms matter. The demographics matter again. If it's a young woman presenting with inflammatory arthritis and rashes and sericitis, then lupus is higher on the differential in my mind than if it's, let's say, an 80-year-old man who's coming in with persistent fevers and sericitis. In that case, I might be more worried about malignancy in that patient. And so our next question.
1: Are there any dietary and or supplement recommendations that we can recommend to patients to help prevent or reduce lupus flares?
2: There's a lot of patient interest in this, and unfortunately, the amount of data that we have does not match the amount of interest that patients express to us. Um, There are a number of studies looking at dietary factors and the risk of developing lupus, and I'd say on the whole, the data do not suggest that there's any particular dietary factors that influence the risk of developing lupus among people who already have lupus and are curious to know if there's anything they could change in their diet. Again, there's not much data. Um, you know, omega-3 fatty acids in general have been shown to be potentially beneficial in a number of autoimmune diseases. I think the data in lupus are a little bit more mixed. And um, part of that is that there's not there are not as many patients with lupus as compared to other rheumatic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. So it's difficult to study questions of diet in lupus cohorts because they're just not as large in general. Um, We generally tell patients they shouldn't eliminate anything from their diet altogether unless they feel like it's really exacerbating their symptoms. And even then, that would be on a patient by patient basis. We also don't want patients with lupus to develop vitamin or mineral deficiencies because they're avoiding certain foods because that could, for example, lead to anemia. And that could then cause them to have symptoms. Or it could be confusing in terms of whether the anemia is attributable to lupus or whether it's due to a vitamin or mineral deficiency.
1: I wanted to ask a quick follow up. Mm -hmm. Um, The only other thing we think about, too, is vitamin D, I think, and calcium Mm -hmm. supplementation. Yeah. I just wanted to be clear. Are those things still recommended for people with lupus in order to prevent bone disease long term? Oh, that's
2: a great question. I actually just, uh, this is one of my research interests, and I just um, completed a study focused on this. So I can tell you what we found. Um, So bone health in patients with lupus is really important because lupus itself is associated with fracture risk. And then, of course, the treatments that we use for lupus, like glucocorticoids, are associated with increased risk for fractures. So there's a lot of interest in bone health. And then separately, there's a lot of interest in vitamin D and lupus in general. Um, There's many, many studies that have looked in a cross-sectional manner at how much vitamin D patients have in the blood, and then how active is their lupus. Generally, we find that patients with more active lupus have lower vitamin D levels, but it's not clear if that's a cause-effect relationship or not. It could be that the lupus activity itself is causing lower vitamin D rather than that it's low vitamin D that's causing higher lupus activity. So we generally recommend to patients to follow the American College of Rheumatology guidelines on glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis prevention. That means that any patient with lupus who's taking, or really any patient with rheumatic disease, who's taking prednisone seven and a half milligrams per day for three months or longer should be taking vitamin D every day calcium, which could be through the diet, and then a bisphosphonate should be considered, especially if they have normal renal function.
1: Moving on to our next question, Mm -hmm. Um, should all patients with antiphospholipid syndrome be put on antiplatelets and or anticoagulation?
2: I want to clarify first that we're talking about antiphospholipid syndrome as compared to positive antiphospholipid antibodies. That's a really important distinction. Many patients with lupus can have positive tests for lupus anticoagulant or anticardiolipin or beta glycoprotein, uh, beta 2 GP1, but they don't actually have a history of thrombosis or recurrent obstetrical complications. So if the patient is in that category of just positive antibodies but no thrombosis and no obstetrical complications, that patient does not need to be on antiplatelets with some asterisks there um, or anticoagulants. I'd say the one situation in which I would consider putting a patient on just an aspirin, for example, as an antiplatelet agent in that particular case would be somebody who has potentially very high cardiovascular risk because of family history. Um, I can say, for example, I have a patient who has triple positivity of lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin, and beta 2 GP1, and has a family history of premature coronary artery disease. And this particular patient is a male who has these assays all greater than all, all of his labs are greater than assay, so I talked with his cardiologist, and we decided to put him on an aspirin, but that's an unusual case. Most patients with lupus will have an intermediate or maybe a slightly elevated titer, and in that case, I wouldn't put them on a prophylactic aspirin. If a patient has positive antiphospholipid antibodies and has a history of thrombosis or recurrent obstetrical complications, that would be defined as antiphospholipid syndrome, and those patients most definitely need to be on anticoagulation not just antiplatelets, and in fact, we don't often use antiplatelets in those patients, so we wouldn't use an aspirin in them, but we would definitely have them either on warfarin or some, you know, there's, there's mixed data on some of the newer anticoagulants. Um, generally, rheumatologists are sticking with warfarin when a patient is able to comply with it and, you know, get the INRs checked and keep their INR in a the therapeutic range. In some cases, we'll switch to the novel oral anticoagulants if there are other extenuating circumstances, but the data for preventing recurrent thrombosis are the best for warfarin. So those patients need to be on anticoagulation. Many people with lupus are young women, and so when they decide that they want to conceive, then we'd have to have the conversation about switching off the warfarin because it's teratogenic that needs to be done before they try to conceive, they need to switch to low molecular weight heparin and continue that throughout the pregnancy and be followed by a maternal fetal medicine doctor. Okay, great, thank you. Our
1: next question is related to primary care clinicians and how to follow their patients with SLE. So how often do you think primary care clinicians should be monitoring their patients with SLE and are there any labs in particular they should be following?
2: Primary care doctors can certainly follow patients with lupus on an ongoing basis. Um, And I think the question is really in the particular area where that primary care doctor is, is there a rheumatologist that could be seeing the patient as well? If a patient's seeing a rheumatologist on a regular basis, then I actually don't know if the primary care doctor needs to be doing that monitoring. I think they could really rely on the rheumatologist to do it. In general, if the rheumatologist is seeing a patient, what we do is we monitor them every three to six months depending on how active their lupus is. In a patient who has lupus nephritis or who has had recent active sericitis or arthritis, we'll see those patients every three months and we'll obtain blood work and urine studies at those times. If a patient has very stable lupus, they've been on a stable dose of potentially just hydroxychloroquine for years or they're even potentially on a stable dose of methotrexate for arthritis or something like that, then we can um, space out the visits to maybe every six months if they're very stable. And then they might need lab work every three to six months depending on the medications. So for example, if they're on methotrexate, we'd want to measure the CMP and the CBC every three months to assess for methotrexate toxicity. But if they weren't on a medication like that, then potentially they could have labs every six months. Do you want to know what labs we check? Is that part of this? Yeah, if okay. you don't mind <laughs> sure. sharing
1: with us what labs you check.
2: Sure. Um, So for a patient who has very stable lupus and they're coming in for a routine visit, I tend to check a CBC to assess for cytopenias, which can indicate lupus activity or drug toxicities. I check a CMP to look for renal function and liver function. I do a urinalysis with sediment to look for white blood cells, red blood cells, and casts, although with the caveat that most Clinical labs don't report casts, the kind of cast that we're interested in, which is red blood cell or white blood cell casts, very reliably. Um, so take that with a grain of salt. We're also looking for protein area, of course. And then I also check a spot protein to creatinine ratio. Um, an ESR can be helpful to track over time. And it sort of depends patient by patient. Some patients with lupus always have an elevated ESR, some patients have an ESR that fluctuates with their disease activity. And in that case, it's the most useful to check this. I also would check a double stranded DNA antibody if the patient has a history of positive double stranded DNA antibodies because those also fluctuate over time with disease activity and complements C3 and C4, which fluctuate over time with disease activity. Okay,
1: great. Yeah, I think it's helpful just for us to know those labs because a lot of the clinicians that we talk to, you know, ideally they would get their patient to see a rheumatologist, mm-hmm. but a lot of times they're out in more rural areas or the referral takes, you know, months or, you know, people can't get into the rheumatologist and they just. Kind of want to take the initiative themselves.
2: So, yeah, it's great to know. I think it's great. When I get, uh, one more thing I just want to emphasize is when I get referrals from primary care, oftentimes they've checked um, a CBC and a CMP and an ESR, maybe complements, but they haven't checked the urinalysis. And I wanted to emphasize that it's actually very important to check that because proteinuria can occur even in the context of a normal serum creatinine. So, the CMP may look fine, but they could have significant proteinuria that you'd only detect on the urinalysis.
1: So one question we get is, how relevant is it for patients to have the ANA before they show up to your office for referral? Is it helpful to you to have that ANA done already, or would you rather they show up with no labs and you are ordering
2: them? I personally like to have outside lab results before I see the patient, so not just an ANA, but also any of the other tests that we had discussed before, like an ESR, urinalysis, complements. Um, I may repeat those tests in our clinic here because the reliability of the ANA may vary depending on the lab it's performed in and actually the type of assay that's used. When we talked before about what's considered a positive ANA, I didn't get into this, but there are two generally two broad categories of ANA tests. One is an indirect immunofluorescence test that uses a humanized cell line, and the other is an ELISA test that uses sort of synthetic antigens that are put onto a plate. And the sensitivity of those two types of assays varies. So when a patient comes to me with an ANA that's, let's say, positive one to 160, I probably will repeat it in our lab because I feel very confident in how our lab performs those tests. But yes, it is helpful to have that coming in because, again, if the patient comes in with the ANA of 1 to 40, as a rheumatologist, I'm going to be less convinced that that's a positive result unless the patient describes symptoms that are incredibly convincing for lupus or for another autoimmune disease or they have some physical exam finding that's very concerning.
1: Our next question is, a little bit about treatment. So should primary care clinicians feel empowered to start hydroxychloroquine for patients, or do you think this should be reserved for the rheumatologist? And if so, do you think, are there any tests that should be done prior to starting hydroxychloroquine?
2: I do think that primary care doctors should feel empowered to start hydroxychloroquine. I see it as one of the least toxic medications that we use in rheumatology, certainly less toxic than glucocorticoids like prednisone, in my opinion. I think if you ask different people, they may say different things depending on their point of view. But I think in general, we, we all, as rheumatologists know that prednisone has lots of side effects. The one main side effect of hydroxychloroquine is with long-term use, and that's retinal toxicity. Patients who are at the highest risk for having the retinal toxicity are those who have taken high doses of hydroxychloroquine, number one, and number two for many years. Um, The American Academy of Ophthalmology recently revised its guidelines for what dose is considered safe. So what we use now is five milligrams per kilogram of actual body weight. And to give you a sense, uh, the maximum dose of hydroxychloroquine is 400 milligrams, no matter what the patient's weight is. So the pill comes in a 200 milligram tablet. We can have patients cut it in half, so they could take one pill of 200 milligrams, they could take one and a half pills, which is 300, or they can take two pills, 400. Those are our choices. Um, To give you a sense, if a patient weighs 175 pounds or higher, they're getting 400 milligrams a day. And if they're on the smaller side, then it's going to be 200 or 300 milligrams. I think a primary care doctor can certainly advise a patient to start the appropriate dose based on their weight. Um, at the beginning of treatment, we recommend that all patients should have an ophthalmologic exam to look at the retina, and that should include two components. One is called visual fields to look at the peripheral vision, and the other is called OCT, which looks for maculopathy. That should be done within the first couple of months of starting the medication. And if a patient has a known history of macular disease, then I would have them go and get this test done before they start the black one um, but other than that, they can, just, they can get that um, ophthalmologic exam done. I would also check renal function at the beginning, and the reason is that another risk factor for developing this eye toxicity over time is having poor renal function, which can happen in lupus patients. So sometimes if a patient has very poor renal function, we will lower the dose, even lower than 5 milligrams per kilogram. So I'd say before you start it, make sure that their renal function is relatively normal. Get that eye exam in the first couple of months and then the patient should have an annual eye exam after that.
1: Okay, great. The only follow-up to that that wasn't answered, I think, Mm -hmm. in your response is, what should primary care clinicians look for on exam or in history when patients come in Um, about adverse events related to the eye on hydroxychloroquine. Is there anything specific or is it just general vision changes or?
2: Yeah, so uh, the first thing is that the risk of developing eye toxicity is extremely low in the first five years of taking hydroxychloroquine. It's about 1% in the first five years. So if a patient started hydroxychloroquine a few months ago and they now say they're seeing floaters um, or something else, I'd say that's not gonna be from the hydroxychloroquine. I reassure patients of these types of things all the time. Um, You could always have them see the ophthalmologist if they were concerned. Unfortunately, patients don't usually develop symptoms of hydroxychloroquine eye toxicity until the damage is very severe. And that's why it's so important to get the annual screening exam so that these changes can be detected early and the hydroxychloroquine can be stopped as soon as these are seen. Um, Unfortunately, once the damage is there, it's not reversible. So the types of damage that can develop with the long-term use, again, patients with high dose of hydroxychloroquine for many years and with renal dysfunction, they can develop um, decreased visual acuity, loss of their peripheral vision, and decreased night vision.
1: The last question um, is about steroid dosing, Mm -hmm. sort of in the primary care setting. Mm -hmm. So what what would your recommendation be for a typical steroid dose um, for mild to moderate disease flare with no renal involvement? And then how would you taper the steroids?
2: It's a bit of a art of medicine question. And I think, again, if you ask 10 rheumatologists, you'll get 10 different answers. If a patient comes in, it depends on what the symptom is. So if a patient has a flare of arthritis, the first thing I want to make sure is, are they taking hydroxychloroquine and are they on the appropriate dose? Um, If this is their first time having an arthritis flare, fine, we can treat them with prednisone. But if this is their third arthritis flare you know, they should be on a disease-modifying agent at that point. So we could talk about starting methotrexate, for example, or abatacept. If the patient is, you know, let's say they're already on that therapy or this is their first flare and you want to just give them some prednisone to sort of tide them over and get them through this, I would usually consider a one- to two-week course of steroids. And it depends on the severity. If it's some arthritis that's bothering them for 30 minutes in the morning, and it's just in their fingers, I may give them prednisone 10 milligrams a day for a week, then maybe 5 milligrams a day for a week, and then they would complete the prednisone. If they, you know, By contrast, if they had flare of cirrusitis, and they probably had been seen in the hospital, or they at least had a chest x-ray to look for pleural effusion. Let's say you see a small pleural effusion, and they're having Um, pain with inspiration and they have low complements and a ESR is elevated, you know, that's a little bit more serious. So I would maybe treat them with prednisone 20 or 30 milligrams and taper it over a little bit of a longer time, like three weeks, potentially even four weeks and going down by about five milligrams a week. But it it really depends on the clinical scenario and how the patient's responding. I ask patients to contact me when they're in the middle of the prednisone taper because I don't want to just taper it off and not talk to them for a month. I want them to tell me if they're doing worse. If they're doing worse, then I'll increase the prednisone by a little bit. Thank you so much to Dr. Tedeschi for joining us today and answering some frequently
1: asked questions around lupus. As a reminder to our listeners, this podcast is part of our five-part Connected series on lupus check out primed.com to participate in other complimentary activities related to lupus.
0: We thank you again for joining Primed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com podcasts. Also be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.